But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The Epistle of St. Paul to Titus, chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. The Lord has done great things for us, beloved. Great are the works of the Lord. Today, in particular, we remember, celebrate, and draw near to one of his greatest and most marvelous mysteries, the incarnation of the Son of God. St. Leo the Great said of today, in adoring the birth of our Savior, we find we are celebrating the commencement of our own life. For the birth of Christ is the source of life for Christian folk and the birthday of the head is the birthday of the body. So good morning, church, and happy birthday to the Lord, who is our head. His birthday, his wondrous incarnation, is a mystery so great that angels long to look into it, as St. Peter said. No wonder, then, that in our gospel we see the angels filling the sky over Bethlehem's fields, and singing the Gloria, the same Gloria we sang moments ago, although I'm not sure if it was in Latin. (laughs) That depends on who you ask, I suppose. Hebrew, okay, Hebrew. Singing the same Gloria to humble shepherds keeping watch over their flock. And in a sense, these shepherds were keeping the watch, keeping the Advent vigil that God's people had been keeping for so many centuries a watch we've had opportunity to enter into ourselves over the last few weeks with the season of Advent. A watch Isaiah mentions in our Old Testament passage when he speaks of the watchmen on the walls, standing ready all the day and all the night for the salvation of Yahweh, the God of Israel. In the event, he came at an hour almost no one expected. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, Heaven's choirs did not hesitate to make it clear it was worth the wait. In the darkness, witness at first only by the livestock, then some shepherds, God came for us. He came for us. In love and humility, he came and showed us the great and mighty works of the Lord are always worth the wait. Now, in the beginning, as you'll remember, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and there was darkness over the face of the deep. God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, was hovering over the face of the waters. Not only that, but as St. John tells us, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. All things were made through Him, and there was not anything made that was not made through Him. The Father, by the Son, through the Spirit, speaking light and life, expanses and firmaments, plants and animals into existence. But on the sixth day, something a little different. Let us make man in our image, he said. 
after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. From dust, he formed us. And out of his tremendous love, he breathed into that dust the breath of life. He sealed us indelibly with his own image, bestowing a dignity beyond all comprehension so that David can say in Psalm 8, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Yet you've made him a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. On the sixth day, the Lord joined soul to body. Soul to body. A union which St. Bernard of Clairvaux says in one of his Christmas sermons speaks to him of charity. A union which speaks to him of charity, of love. Acknowledge, O man, your dignity, St. Bernard says. Acknowledge the glory of your human nature. When God saw what he had made, he said it was good. But at the end of the sixth day, he said it was very good. The Logan family has recently been blessed with the opportunity to consider anew this union of soul and body, this union of charity, with the knitting together in Laura's womb of our newest addition, sweet baby James, who is due sometime around the end of January. Uh, Although I must admit to have an expectant wife around this time of year means unavoidably feeling a little bit like St. Joseph, right? I'm keeping my eyes open for stables whenever we're traveling, just in case. It hasn't come to that, praise the Lord. But one of the greatest gifts of this season and our little family for me has been to experience this pregnancy alongside Jack and Charlotte. This is the only time they're going to listen to me. All right. My son Jack and my daughter Charlotte. For they regard the ex nihilo creation of a new soul the way it ought to be regarded. As a great mystery. As a miracle, in fact. An occasion for joy and wonder. But, as some of you know, this was not the first time they rejoiced over the news of new life in our family Almost two years ago, we also celebrated the news of a little baby, although we would only be able to enjoy that baby's company for about 10 weeks before it was received into the care of the angels. There were many tears and many painful explanations to our children about why they would never meet their sibling in this life, and since then they still speak of their brother Abel, as we came to call him, with the faith of children talking with great expectation of hope and hope of seeing him again with the Lord in glory. My children teach me. They remind me anew of something this world is so feverishly trying to forget, that human life is a divine gift of love, and love is as strong as death. We have to beware, beloved, the subtleties of the devil in our day and age, The father of lies hates God's creation. He labors to see it undone. We can see the fruit of that labor all around us. Our adversary knows his time is short, so he is 
furiously at work to convince us, God's image bearers, to reject the fundamental goodness of our creation, the dignity of our vocation as human beings, to rip up and destroy what God has called very good. Now, the infernal worm began his project in the garden, not with a statement, of course. God was the one making statements, statements like, let there be light, let there be Uh, uh, Let the earth sprout vegetation, let us make man in our image. No, the serpent could only take God's text and put it in italics. He could only twist it. All he had to offer, all he could create, if you can even call it that, is that one piece of punctuation that itself seems to twist like the snake, the question mark. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And so he lied giving promises of independent, self-sufficient divinity which still echo today. Promises which in the end brought only, as John Milton put it, man's first disobedience and the fruit of that forbidden tree whose mortal taste brought death into the world and all our woe. The devil's leaven leavened the whole lump of humanity. And the impossible obscenity of death came in, riding on the coattails of our sin, and we were cast out of the garden. However, despite the sentence of death, Adam gave our first mother a very interesting name, Eve, Chava in Hebrew, because Scripture tells us there in Genesis 3.20, she was the mother of all living, Chai, Chava Chai. Which should seem strange as you read along, given she wasn't the mother of anyone at the time. She was named this. Here, at the pronouncement of their death sentence, Adam gave, Adam seems to be showing the faith that would later arise in his descendant Abraham. Faith in the promise of God that the seed of the woman would one day crush the serpent's head and pour out a blessing on all nations. Our first parent held to the hope that the great and mighty works of the Lord are always worth the wait. So we threw away that gift, the gift of our creation, the union granted out of God's great love between soul and body, we threw it away then and we throw it away now. Certainly we remember the age-old complaint of adolescence throughout all time and space. I didn't ask to be born. A complaint not limited to adolescence, as it turns out. God pours out his love in making us, and each one of us, not just Adam and Eve, but each one of us go chasing after the promises of serpents in our respective gardens. As St. Paul writes in Romans 1, though God's eternal power and divine nature are clearly perceived in what has been made, we refuse to honor God for who he is, and so we invite futility into our thinking. Our foolish hearts are darkened. We need light. We need light. We were given in love the greatest dignity a creature can possess, being made in God's image. And we tried to sacrifice that image on the altar of self-worship. What will you do, O Lord our God, 
Is this work of yours never to be repaired? Will those who have fallen never rise again? In death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? Will you be angry with us forever? No. He would not abandon our souls to Sheol. He would not let his Holy One see corruption. Rather, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons, heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We shattered the first union, so he made a better union, a Trinitarian union, as it happens, joining body and soul to a third, the immortal word of God, a triunion that St. Bernard likens to the three measures of flour our Lord mentions in one of his parables about the kingdom of God, three measures of meal which are used to make the bread of angels, the bread of life laid in a manger in a town called Bethlehem, meaning literally house of bread. Happy that woman, St. Bernard says, and blessed among all women in whose chaste bosom this heavenly bread was baked, baked over the fire of the Holy Spirit. And yet, as can be seen in the iconography of our Lord's nativity, where his swaddling cloths are wrapped about him like burial clothes, that bread had to be broken to save us. Truly, truly, Christ our God says to us in John 12, 24, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. While the bread of our Lord's body was intact, who could enter in? And who could force him to break it? As he said himself, no one takes his life from him. He alone has authority to lay it down, and he alone has authority to take it up again. But as Adam used his unfallen will to choose to eat, so Christ uses his will to choose to be eaten. The bread I will give for the life of the world, he says in John 6, 51, is my flesh. Bread, in fact, that will be broken for all to see and for the baptized to taste in a few moments at this holy table. That great poet and priest John Donne wrote this of the nativity. Immensity cloistered in thy dear womb now leaves his well-beloved imprisonment. There he hath made himself to his intent, weak enough now into our world to come. Immensity cloistered in thy dear womb now leaves his well-beloved imprisonment. There he hath made himself to his intent, weak enough now into our world to come. What could repair the rupture of God's image? It is only the virtue of humility, St. Bernard says, that can repair the injury done to charity. The great and mighty works of the Lord do not hesitate to stoop to the lowly, and they are always worth the wait. Well, having freely borrowed, some would call it plagiarized, from St. Bernard of Clairvaux, I've spoken of the first union of charity, which we broke at the fall, the second union of humility with our Lord's incarnation by which he redeems us. I wonder if you all would be so kind to hear me speak briefly of a third union, a union of glory. 
the union we look and long for with hope and faithful expectation. I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. The grain of wheat that did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped prepared the way for us. This is why he is called the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep in 1 Corinthians 15. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies, St. Paul writes. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of some wheat or of some other grain. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It's sown in dishonor, yes, but it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. For the third union, the union of glory, is not a union of flesh, but of the Spirit. As we read in 1 Corinthians six seventeen, He who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. There is a greater union awaiting those who endure to the end, a mystical union between Christ and his church, the bridegroom and his bride. As we read in Ephesians 5, Christ will present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, holy and without blemish, for she has been cleansed by the washing of water with the word. The wait that feels so long will at last seem like a momentary affliction compared to the eternal weight of glory that's waiting for us beyond all comparison. The great and mighty works of the Lord are worth the weight, for they give way to an eternal weight of glory. The bread of our fallen flesh is wasting away, so let us partake of the bread of life and not shrink back from the yoke of the gentle one, the one lowly in heart, who allowed himself to be broken for us. For behold, he's making all things new. He's making all things new. The Gloria over Bethlehem will join with the Gloria of the church militant to the Gloria of the church triumphant. We will see that the graveyards of the faithful, after all, were just gardens. Bare kernels that would have remained alone except for that one grain of wheat that would not abandon us to Sheol. And beloved, there will be such a harvest, such a feast. Thanks be to God.